Welcome to Season 2 of Do Good and Do Well. My name is Sarah Fox and I'm a life and leadership coach and founder of the Do Good and Do Well community. And this is a podcast where we explore how to be a changemaker without losing yourself. Let's get to it. Hi everyone and welcome to season two, episode two. I am really chuffed that you're here listening to this and I hope you are well. In today's episode, I am sharing with you the conversation that I had with Rosie Wilby. Rosie is an award-winning comedian who has appeared many times on BBC Radio 4. Her first book, Is Monogamy Dead?, followed her trilogy of shows investigating the psychology of love. Rosie also presents the Breakup Monologues podcast, which provides the inspiration for her new book of the same name, and that is out on the 27th of May. You can pre-order it and listen to her podcast because it is really brilliant. Rosie's work is all about thinking about relationships differently and finding compassionate, ethical ways to connect with others and also disconnect when we need to. And the conversation that we had, we had a couple of weeks ago, it's really stuck in my head. One of the questions that has come up for me since our conversation is around how our relationship with ourselves impacts the relationship we have with others. So often in my experience in in my world what I see around me is people can have really amazing ways of talking to others you know you're you're change makers you really care about others you're compassionate you listen and we don't always show that same care and compassion to ourselves so I invite you just to think about how the relationship that you have with yourself differs from the relationship you have with others and and how it impacts that, not just in work, but in your own personal world, the people that you love most in the world, your romantic relationships, your friendships. Is it similar? Is it different to the relationship you have with yourself? And I'm wondering whether it's possible to really be able to be compassionate and have ethical relationships, both connection and disconnection, if we don't have a great relationship with ourselves. It feels like rocky ground. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Welcome to the Do Good and Do Well podcast. I am so, so excited that I'm here talking to you this morning. It's such a beautiful day and so I feel like everyone's feeling a bit lighter today. How are you? Yes, I agree totally that things, a change in the weather makes all the difference to me. I definitely enjoy that sunshine and getting a bit of vitamin D. And I deliberately took a slightly quieter day yesterday because things had been getting really 
hectic with the run-up to my book coming mm. out and getting that all finished and all the proofreading, signing off the cover design, starting to think about the press and marketing. And there's been a lot going on and a lot to kind of juggle in my head. And I knew I needed a bit of a afternoon of sitting in the garden with the cat mm. reading a book um, yes. and just just emptying some of that stuff from my mind that has been keeping mm. me awake at night that have I done this have I done that and I don't know I think it's even easier during a pandemic and during lockdown which of course we are just coming out of it's been even easier to overload yourself in a strange way because you can't do the fun things like go out and, and meet a friend for dinner or lunch Mm. so yeah I think burnout has been a, definitely a, a danger for all of us mm. yeah I agree and also I think there's something about because we're all a lot of us are working at home and living at home doing everything at home so you don't have that boundary you don't have that commuting time necessarily <laughs> where you can think it all through or process stuff it, I, I finish work shut my laptop and then I'm downstairs instantly as mum who has probably done something wrong or where's dinner or <laughs> anything like that so tell us about yourself what would you like us to know about you well hello I'm Rosie Wilby I'm a comedian author and podcaster and former musician and I have tended over the last decade or so to look at how I can use comedy and humour as a tool for communicating ideas, largely ideas around having more compassionate and ethical relationships. And this was spurred really by a relationship that I had 10 years ago and which ended 10 years ago where I was dumped by email and I joked on stage that I felt much better once I'd corrected her spelling and punctuation um, but it had been a significant relationship a five-year relationship and I felt at the time that I would have wanted some kind of face-to-face post-mortem and analysis of, of what had happened what had gone wrong and it's some kind of celebration of the good times we'd had as well mm. whereas a sort of an email to me seemed like a cold way of of ending something and and a you know obviously yes you can reply to that email but it feels like you you don't have an immediate response where you have you know a sort of way to fight your case fight your cause in a way because that person has decided and they've just sent you a message and that's it and um, of course now we have even worse even less personal ways of breaking up with somebody we have ghosting which is just sort of completely disappearing and not even communicating with that person anymore and then there's all these other strange words like breadcrumbing and all these other all this kind of language for dumping people in slightly as I would see it unethical ways has yeah. has sprung up I, I had a solo show where I talked about breakups and I I kind of projected a sort of a future timeline of how we might break up with people in the future and maybe dating would become the ultimate blood sport where we could just vaporize our exes um <laughs> so i i kind of feel quite strongly that the way we treat one another on dating apps and the way that has become like a game does filter into our broader sense of how we treat people mm. and how we 
think about how we might want to treat people as we would want to be treated ourselves. So yeah. I think even though I'm a comedian and I am looking at things on the surface in a light way, there's a lot to why I am doing that and what is motivating me to do that. Mm. And as well as the kind of ideas around having more compassionate and ethical relationships, I've always been um, keen to promote ideas around diversity and inclusion. I've always spoken very openly about my identity as a gay woman mm. and how that has informed my life in both liberating and celebratory ways and limiting ways, because sadly mm. the world has not always been particularly <laughs> accepting of gay people. We had a TV programme on recently, I don't know if you watched it, called It's a Sin, which mm. took me back to the 1980s, which was the time when I was a teenager and first realising that I was gay. And it was um, a pretty hostile, hostile world in those days. Mm. And yeah, so when I do my comedy shows and write my books, I do often get messages you know particularly from gay women of a certain age who who particularly respond to the way I write about relationships and love because you know when I was first having relationships it seemed like marriage and having children and those kind of things would be completely unavailable mm -hmm. um and in some ways it's it's quite a complex emotional place I think a certain generation of gay women find themselves in now where those things are becoming possible, but perhaps it feels a bit too late for some of us to completely recalibrate our lives in that way. So I think there are some complex things mm. that are both universal to talk about relationships for everybody, whatever your gender, whatever your sexual orientation, and about how we might have those relationships ethically. But I also see my role as speaking quite openly about a particular set of experiences that is linked to being gay as well, because I think there are some things that are particular in our society to being part of a minority group. So there are kind of, there's, there are the two levels of, of what I'm doing, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. There are so many things there in, in what you've just said. In the first season, I talked to Tin and Dieb, who, who talk, who's a political oh. comedian, or, or he talks about politics in his comedy, I should say. And we talked, yes. we talked about, or I asked him about how comedy can be a form of protest. That idea was really interesting to me. And I, I heard one of your episodes, Kate Fox was on there, and you were talking oh, yeah. about laughter and comedy as a form of healing yeah and, and what you were then just saying about I suppose it's storytelling as well it's a, a bit like this podcast in in wanting to open up some of this dialogue about what's happening in the world for individuals and saying we are we are different but we share we share similarities can you talk a bit more about that the comedy as a form of healing yeah, I think comedy is in some ways a sort of subversive art form because you can sneak controversial ideas under the radar in a way. So I think it's a really interesting tool. I think, yes, it can heal people because sharing our stories and relating to other people's stories and knowing you're not alone is, is crucial. I think particularly in all the work that I've done about breakups and relationship endings, mm. um, lots of people message me and say I feel less alone or if I've talked 
in my first book about uh, kind of finding the heteronormative kind of narrative about how we should have relationships and just the more wider normative narrative about what we should what is a normal what does a yeah. proper relationship look like even if it is now accepted to have a relationship between two men or two women or we may even be becoming more accepting about people who are non-binary and, and, and transgender mm -hmm. and we're, we're starting to be more open-minded about all of that but I still think there's a narrative about how we're supposed to have a relationship and yeah. how it's supposed to play out and there's this idea of the relationship escalator that we sort of travel up onwards through through an ever-increasing hierarchy of stages of sort of living together and mm -hmm. uh, getting married and having children and and we must display our commitment in a certain type of way. And not everyone wants to necessarily fit into that narrative, but then you can feel very excluded. So I think a sense of including people is really vital for healing. And I think comedy is a good tool for doing that. Like I say, I think you can sneak subversive ideas mm. under the radar in a sense. Um, mm. I did um, a comedy show at the Edinburgh Fringe back in 2013 called Is Monogamy Dead? Which was sort of looking at those narratives about how we're supposed to have a relationship in the Western world and how we hold up sexual exclusivity as this real kind of pinnacle of, of commitment and, mm. and a, a good, in inverted commas, relationship. Whereas I was actually realising that a number of people that I knew who would call themselves monogamous were actually having affairs of some kind or other or were sort of having serially monogamous relationships with little overlaps or were being not entirely honest with their partners or even with themselves, whereas people I knew who were having polyamorous relationships, having more than one consensually, ethically agreed relationship, were actually going about things in often a more ethical, compassionate, honest way and really communicating at a very deep level because you have to if you're going to talk about boundaries about what mm -hmm. you would be comfortable about your partner being able to have the freedom to do with potentially another lover or another partner or you know some people might define it along more emotional lines than sexual ones yeah. and it might be about having loving friendships but defining boundaries around those you know are there things that you tell other people you don't tell your partner and how do you how do you calibrate and work out all of that so yeah I did that show in 2013 when actually it was pretty <laughs> It was people were not ready uh, necessarily <laughs> to to have that kind of conversation, and it still seemed a bit tricky and a bit dangerous to mm. to be questioning monogamy. I mean, I am actually now in a sexually monogamous relationship, but I think it was important to explore the whole landscape of the different types of relationships that you can have yeah. and that indeed do go on in certain parts of the world. I mean, there are Amazonian tribes who believe in partable paternity, where they believe that actually a woman's child is the result of sex with multiple men and that there are multiple fathers to that child. And, and they think that's a good thing, mm. you know, that, that there are all these men who have an interest in the welfare of that child because they were all part of creating it. 
so, you know, there are really interesting ideas around the world that we don't necessarily give much airtime to yeah. here in the Western world. And so, I, yeah, in 2013, there were definitely people kind of giving me slightly frosty looks. <laughs> I was giving them a flyer saying, is monogamy dead? <laughs> and it had a little survey on the back that you could fill in what counts as cheating, um, because I think it's actually a mu more nuanced question yeah. than just, you know, sex. I mean, well, what is sex anyway? How do we even define that? That's a um, whole other podcast. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> whole I know. <laughs> and we've got such limited views about all of these yeah. things that we think are kind of black and white yeah. questions. Um, but it's interesting how our discussions, as our discussions have become more open about sexuality about gender identity also we have seen a growing awareness that you know some people are having different types of relationships and that is perhaps a valid option and and can work well for certain mm. types of people so I think I think there are broadening discussions about that and by the time I had a book out based on that show and that survey that I did called Is Monogamy Dead in 2017, there was definitely more openness to, to this mm. question. <laughs> but yeah. in 2013, it was, I felt like I was really sort of busting a taboo a bit. Yeah, there's a couple of things there you said. I, I think that idea of the shoulds, I think we're so used to shoulding ourselves in so many ways. And um you know even to I, I should have bought a house by now I should have I should be at yeah. this point of my career I should be in a relationship um and I think some of us aren't good at holding our own boundaries I think what you were saying about being really open and honest and communicating with your partner or partners about expectations and holding firm the boundaries so that it can I suppose that's that's maybe something about creating a safe space everybody knows what what's okay um mm -hmm. and uh oh yeah there, there's just so much going on in my head <laughs> all the things that you've said I'm trying to formulate a question and it's that how do we open up experiences and and not feel that we can only do things one way and keep it ethical and conscious as well mm. Mm. when you were talking about boundaries about communication it, these are things we should just be learning anyway to be better at Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, is as part of my research in inverted commas <laughs> for my first book, I performed comedy at a sex party. Now, oh, my goodness. <laughs> this was a very interesting evening. But I have to say it was probably one of the most respectful and ethical and human and compassionate and conscious events I've ever been to. And when you went in, there were kind of rules and guidelines about how you should treat other people and how you should respect other people's boundaries. And really, it just felt like rules we should have in all our relationships. Mm. And the other thing that was very interesting is you can't 
enter the party without they have what's called a pal system where another person has to vouch for you and vouch for your behavior and they and say they'll take you home if you get at all rowdy or drunk or anything like that but actually what okay. i found was nobody was really drinking very much at all everyone was just high on this atmosphere of connection and the main space in the party where they had the cabaret that i performed at was just kind of all very chill and very much focused around people just chatting getting to know each other and there was a separate space where you know if you wanted to <laughs> do something more yes um you could go and do that if you know mm. if you had got the consent and agreement of all the other mm. people who might be involved in that situation um and yeah i think discussion of boundaries to me where that was kind of the first time i'd really heard people really bringing that up as, as something so key and so important i've yeah. been having relationships for years where we've probably never talked about boundaries yeah. probably never talked about what we're comfortable with or not not just in a sexual setting but just in an emotional mm. vulnerability and trust kind well, of yeah. on that whole spectrum well also being able to say how you how you want your needs to be met so if we all have days where we feel a bit more social and and we want long conversations and there are other days where you know these are quite regular days for me currently <laughs> you want to like shut the door and not like <laughs> want to discuss the day because it's like you're done you don't want to you don't necessarily want to have that conversation and to be able to say you know what actually can we not have this discussion now or actually I really want to have a discussion and and, and there is some negotiation isn't there there's a compromise in that but how do we get better at being able to say what it is we need so that we're not relying on on other people to be mind readers that they should <laughs> yeah. know exactly what we want well that's why i think in my book which was called is monogamy dead which was obviously a bit of a provocative title mm. i was deliberately saying look i'm not, certainly not telling people we shouldn't be monogamous it can be wonderful if you meet someone who you have a, a high degree of compatibility oh. with on a, a number of fronts and if you both have other friends and other things in your life that relieve some of the burden of, of your need and your mm. expectation um you know monogamy can become problematic when when everything is just heaped onto that one person that they're yeah. your best friend and lover yeah. and confidant and colleague and you know therapist god knows yeah so i think if if we are able to take some of the values of polyamory and the people who are doing it ethically and doing it well because of course there, there may be some people you know i've met one or two blokes who are a bit like yeah i've got two girlfriends really you know and it seems like ah whatever yeah. um, <laughs> and then the girlfriends are really really quiet and i feel really mm, not sure tricky. about that situation yeah. at all um but then i i meet people who are clearly very very ethical and um the women have clearly been the ones really setting and defining the boundaries and and it all seems really done well and i think those values of communicating and and really bigging up consent and mm. boundaries and all these important things it, it can only be good and it can be good values to transport 
into monogamous relationships just as it can in polyamorous ones. But I just think because of the nature of polyamory and the fact that you have to negotiate what you're comfortable with or not, you have to start setting some boundaries and, and guidelines. I think it's been more evident in those type of setups. So I think it's it's about learning how we can how we can do that, even if we want to be sexually exclusive and have, mm. you know, more, more of a traditional relationship format. Those values are still super, super important because, you know, we still see monogamous partnerships that are, you know, one partner could be really controlling or abusive mm. and, and we see unhealthy relationships. So mm. it's about bringing in some of those healthy values of, of really really good communication mm. and I wonder whether also well I don't wonder I, I, I think I know the answer to, but it's actually any relationship any relationship that we have whether it's a parent a child a friend a colleague yeah. actually being able I feel we need to get much better at firstly systems structures policies that allow people the opportunity to say what it is they need and to be able to yeah, set their own boundaries and hold those boundaries firm. Those values that you've just talked about, in my ideal world, we all have those and we all live them and they are active. They're not just plonked Mm. in a policy somewhere or, you know, a tick box. They are active values that exist and, and enable people to feel like they have control over their own lives and, and can say what they want. I was going to ask you, because you, you have your podcast, The Breakup Monologues. Yes, do people do. constantly come up and tell you about their <laughs> breakups? Because one of the first things <laughs> I wanted to do was, was tell, tell me about you. your breakup. Okay. So, so I've been married for a really long time preparing for this interview. I was thinking about the last time I had a breakup and, and last night, I had a dream that my husband and I <laughs> broke up. <laughs> oh no! It's like were all really, sort of merged. Were you really annoyed with him when you woke up? Because sometimes that no. happens, doesn't it? No. Well, I was still feeling it. I so he was the one to break up with me. By the way, I want to make this clear. In the dream, he was breaking up with me. <laughs> we were students Aww. living in a house, and we were sorting through all of our stuff. And I remember trying to coach him out of this breakup. <laughs> So I was saying things like, what's it going to cost you not to be with me anymore? So it's like my coaching and, and this conversation I knew we were having was all merged. It's funny how these things infiltrate into your brain. But, do you know, you've obviously done a lot of research about breakups. Is there anything particular about the last year and how mm. things have been for people in lockdown? Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, Every country that has had a lockdown has seen an uptick in divorce rates. So, yeah, we've had serious breakups because, of course, it has reinforced a binary. For people who live together, it's made everything really, really intense. For people who don't live together, it's kind of pushed them apart and they can't really see each other except sort of walking in the park and so on. so and some people who'd started new relationships suddenly moved in together but that was just too quick and you know uh the relationships maybe floundered so Mm. I think it forced a lot of people to work out where they were at and what their situation was and it it was a catalyst I think for, for some people maybe their relationships were not 
going to last anyway, but it certainly hurried a lot of breakups up and, and it's been a very difficult time for people and even in really great relationships, yeah. you know, just being together the whole time. I mean, <clears throat> me and my partner, like the first lockdown, it was really quite nice. I mean, it was awful to think of the reasons behind the lockdown mm. and, and what was happening and the news was pretty depressing. Um, but in terms of our own relationship, we had more time together. She wasn't going out to work. Um, the weather was gorgeous. We took the dog out for lovely walks. We started cooking nice food. So it, it was sort of quite nice in a way. You know, we felt connected with nature. We could hear the birds, you know, more than when there was lots of traffic noise. And it was quite nice. But then the second and third lockdowns have felt too intense. It, it feels like we've been ready to have a bit more space from each other again by now. And, you know, we're okay. But, gosh, it's it's hard at times. We had a big, big row about money because money is more stressful now for a lot of people mm -hmm. we're both self-employed mm -hmm. um so it's it's tricky i had tons of work cancelled and it's tough it's really it's really stressful so these tensions flare up mm -hmm. of course they do so i think if you can kind of talk and, and be kind and compassionate um and breakups are really really painful but you're not alone to reach out to other friends obviously it's been difficult to see people to hug and that kind of yeah, thing but yeah. you know chat on zoom and chat to other people who've been through the experience because people who've had a breakup a longer time ago it does also get better yeah and time yeah. is is the biggest healer when yeah. it comes to breakups and, and having an awareness of what has what has happened that has meant that relationship is sadly no longer able to to work in mm. that way um it may be that you go on to become great friends and you have a different type of relationship and also any relationship that lasted for any length of time probably was a real success mm. for the time that it lasted we're too quick i think to build relationships that end as failed relationships yeah. and i think that's a language that we need to need to reconsider mm. because if yeah particularly if you manage to uncouple consciously <laughs> um i mean i don't credit uh, gwyneth paltrow with inventing conscious uncoupling i credit lesbians because the lesbian community has been a tiny community yeah. and actually really had to pioneer some form of conscious uncoupling mm. because there was no way when decades ago women all met in in little social groups in in each other's houses mm. and there was no way that you could get away from your ex you were going to see them as part of that social group they were yeah. probably going to get together with one of your other friends so lesbians have had to negotiate this really painful situation of still seeing your ex and often you find that lesbians are best friends with their ex-partners uh, because they've really brokered this mm. compassionate way of staying in one another's lives but mm. resolving the sexual jealousy when when somebody meets somebody else and all of these difficult things yeah. and challenges um, but you know in a small community you sort of have to break up as as ethically as you yeah. possibly can because like mm. i say before before gay bars and well you know particularly before lesbian bars which <laughs> were a bit behind spaces for gay men um yeah women were in very small groups where <laughs> 
well, you couldn't escape. Mm. Yeah, so it was was easier, I guess, in many ways, just to get on and yeah, and yeah, absolutely. that kind of po- and... po- a positive mindset around it, I suppose. Yeah. You know, in terms of what are yeah. the what are the gifts that might have come from that relationship, exactly. and how can and, you and take seeing, that? Yeah, seeing that as a success if you do manage yeah. to do that. Yeah, I think that that also causes lots of other things. You know, around we have this thing about failure and and um attaching the success or failure of something to our own identity so if something doesn't work it's about us we are we are the failure and and so that shift of perspective i suppose about actually what really worked well and let's it's a win as you say if you've been in a long term relationship that's a win <laughs> You know, not not all of them, but that is a win for some people. And the good times, the the connection, that's something lovely to remember. Oh, absolutely, I think so. Another thing people can do if if they are struggling to kind of recover and and forget about a partner is something that's called a negative reappraisal strategy and and we can tend to put our ex-partner on a bit of a pedestal and look at them through rose-tinted glasses and think that was the only one that was the perfect partner that's Mm. the one that got away I'll never find anyone like that but actually if you remember some of the reasons why it went wrong and some of the arguments and some of the things that were really difficult and challenging about that person or the relationship with them then actually you can start to realise that you might find someone who's a better fit and there'll be an even better relationship ahead. And it's a bit like when former alcoholics, you know, are encouraged to think about the negative aspects of drinking rather than (laughs) the euphoria that you feel before it all goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's a, a <laughs> like the, the, the word SWOT analysis just came into my head, but that kind of, you know, analysis of what really worked and what worked for me. So what do I want to keep thinking, you know, if I'm going into another relationship, what's really important for me? And actually, what are the things that I definitely don't want? <laughs> I don't want that to happen again. or I don't want someone like that. Being really yeah. clear in, and I suppose that's all about, tuning into yourself and really thinking about what it is you need which can be hard especially if we attribute all the negativity to ourselves and our own personality and who we are um but yeah I guess like that kind of taking a step back and yeah, not not doing a SWOT analysis <laughs> that's just random um, <laughs> but, 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 So one of the questions that I ask all my guests is what does do good and do well mean for you, Rosie? Well, I wanted to share with you an example of somebody who I feel embodies that. Mm-hmm. And as a sort of preface to that, I need to explain that one of the things that I do to escape from stress and burnout and, and work and um to escape into mindfulness is I'm a huge tennis fan and I love watching tennis I love the drama that unfolds I love the scoring system I love the sort of 
quietness in between the points when you're watching Wimbledon centre court. Or even now, the tennis tournaments that are happening behind closed doors in lockdown without a crowd. It's kind of weird, but there is a peacefulness mm. to the ball, just the sounds of the ball and the and the little sounds that the players make. And I'm a huge, huge tennis fan. And I have been hugely inspired recently by the tennis player Naomi Osaka, who... I believe completely embodies the spirit of do good and do well. She is without doubt the number one female tennis player at the moment, particularly on hard courts, even though the ranking systems are a bit behind that because Mm -hmm. they kind of froze them during the pandemic when certain players couldn't travel to certain tournaments. So when she was playing at the US Open last year, she wore a face mask for each of her matches And she had seven face masks bearing the names of black Americans who had Mm. been killed, many of them in situations of police violence. And she did not know for sure that she was going to reach the final. But after her first victory, she made it clear to the media that she had seven masks and she was intending to wear those seven masks and give exposure to I mean, there are many, many more, sadly, black people who have been killed. But she had seven people she wanted to give a profile to, to raise awareness. And there was one match she played where she had George Floyd's name on her mask. And after that, she said, I'm a vessel in order to spread awareness. And I thought that was kind of incredibly humble that she's this fantastic tennis player so skilled at what she does but she has then gone and used that platform to spread uh, an incredibly powerful good message and that then in turn inspired her to do what she does play tennis really really well and make sure that she got to the final and won the final because then her message has even more impact so you know there was a sort of this symbiosis really between doing good and doing well Mm -hmm. in that action which I think is incredibly inspiring because she inspired herself to do well by doing good which meant Mm -hmm. that she was doing even more good and even though many of us we're not quite as skilled at something as Naomi Saga is at playing tennis we're not the number one in the world (laughs) Um, but I think there's something in that about using our voice and our platform that we gain from doing something well and the connections and networks that we make and thinking about how that can allow us to spread a message that is important to us And then sort of using the fact that we can spread that message as motivation to keep on doing what we do really, really well. Mm. And I've kind of been thinking about how we seem to evaluate success in numbers at the moment. Naomi Osaka hasn't yet won as many Grand Slams as, which are like the major tournaments in tennis, as say Serena Williams, who I also think is an incredible role model and and a great pioneer, and her sister Venus Williams. There are so many brilliant, brilliant women in tennis. And what she's done has kind of elevated her way kind of beyond the sort of number of of big tournaments that she's won. And there have been incredible pioneers in tennis history as well. You know, someone like Arthur Ashe, um, who won one Wimbledon, but 
his legacy of kind of pioneering fighting for civil rights is, is so much more important than that. So I think, you know, why do we always measure success in, in numbers? It frustrates me. In our podcast world, everyone's fixated on a download number. I kind of think, isn't it just as valuable to serve a small community really well mm. as just serving a, a massive one? Mm. In the publishing world, people get paid advances based on how many copies the publisher thinks they are going to sell with all the bias yeah. that is built into that system, which obviously is going to mean that we see white authors, heterosexual authors, getting paid more, able-bodied authors, cisgendered authors. And, you know, because we tend to think that people from a minority voice are going to serve a smaller community. So the way things work at the moment, it means that those people get paid less. Well, hang on a minute. What's going on? Yeah. You know, why why can't we measure podcast success in your listen-through rates? or some evaluation of what people receive, what people get from your podcast or get mm. from your book. Who's read your book cover to cover and made notes in the margin and, and earmarked all the pages? You know, when the, a book is really, really successful, sometimes people just have it on the shelf because it's the cool book to have. Yeah. They've never even looked at it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I may have some of those books. <laughs> well, so do I. But you're right. Um, I, you are absolutely right. And and I see that. And I mean, I could rant for ages about this, but I won't. I think you're absolutely right. I had a really amazing email this morning from someone who I've never met who said, I've been listening to your podcast and it has resonated massively with me. And you like, yay, that's my <laughs> yay. success. You know, I ended up being number 10 or something for about a day um, in the entrepreneurship. And, I, and you know, and I wanted to celebrate that, of course, but I wasn't in it for very long. Um, but, you know, you do, I think you are right. What is, what, how are we measuring success? And often it's, it's in such... Well, quite dull ways as well. I love that idea of like how many people have written in the margins and folded over the pages. And I uh, thank you as well for that example of someone who you feel is illustrating that do good, do well. It's such a powerful way to think about it. And sometimes when this work, particularly for change makers, it can get really, it's really hard if you're on the ground working in communities who are having a really, really tough time, it, it's hard work, or even running your own business, being self-employed, you know, it's not easy to motivate yourself all the time. But I think having that vision of how you want to make a difference can be so motivating because it reminds you, you need to get out of your own way, that actually this podcast, it's about the people who are listening to it and for them to feel connected to something else and if we can all spend some time thinking about what is it we really want to do how is it we really want to make this difference then that is so motivating to just keep getting up although some days you don't have to you can lie in bed you can sit in the garden and listen to the birds and that's very important too <laughs> 
it really is. So it's, I, I'm thinking about what you were saying earlier around, you know, that even though comedy on the surface can feel quite like actually you are really challenging some of the notions around relationships and how can we build more conscious, more ethical relationships. Where does that drive to do something deeper come from? I think it comes from being gay and feeling excluded and feeling different when I was a teenager. I think, you know, that is a hard thing to deal with. Um, I mean, although I didn't come out until I was at university where there was a lesbian and gay society, there was a bit more awareness um, it still felt very much I was an outsider in the world mm -hmm. and in society. I couldn't imagine that I would ever be included, certainly in institutions like marriage. I mean, it's still, I, <laughs> I can't get my head around it, but that has all changed so quickly. I mean, myself and a group of students staged a mock wedding demo in the early 90s on Valentine's Day outside York Minster. And we were shouting through megaphones, love is not a crime, as two women had a little fake wedding and two men did as well. And it's just, I suppose it's that sense of, I thought I was very much on the periphery of society. And so you're just banging on the door trying to be included. But then when you do start getting included, you realise that everything's not as perfect as you thought it was in the sort of in the big tent if you like and you realize that actually some of the values some of the things you happened upon where people were being creative because they weren't allowed to get married or they weren't allowed to think about family in a, a certain kind of nuclear biological family way and maybe because gay people were thinking about logical family as the writer Amistad mm -hmm. Morpin calls it where you're sort of you're thinking of maybe as friends as family rather than your biological family um mm. you know these creative ways are quite good things to know, perhaps import in to the wider community and say hey you know my fabulous straight friends and allies we could be doing things this way Mm. Uh, we were only doing it because we were sort of outsiders and, and weren't allowed to do it your way. But actually, some of the things, some of the principles, some of the ideas we had were, were pretty cool and actually encouraged and fostered a sense of respect and compassion and, mm -hmm. and you know, had some real ethics around it. Yeah. I, I often think that the reason why people who who are really driven by that sense of equity and inclusion and wanting to bring something positive is because of a story of something that's that's happened to them that has made them in some way feel excluded or not part of that yeah this that that world the big tent that looks so good <laughs> it looks yeah. so good when you peek inside and then you get in there <laughs> <laughs> thank you rosie how can people find out more about you and all the brilliant work well i'm on twitter at rosie Wilby, which is r-o-s-i-e-w-i-l-b-y and i'm on instagram at breakup monologues which is of course the name of 
the podcast that I do. And it's the name of the forthcoming book. The Breakup yes. Monologues book is going to be coming out at the end of May, published by Bloomsbury. And you can pre-order that right now. And so that will be out in all the good bookshops and all the places where you can get your books it'll be an audio book as well which is different to the podcast because there's quite a different content mm. in the book i'll put all the links in the show notes but also i have an online bookstore and i have put it in there already so you can oh, go there um and order it pre-order it um fantastic well, my first book is monogamy dead is on i think the website where you probably have that um, yeah. online bookstore so yeah you know feel free to pop Find that it. one in there as well <laughs> Yes, do it <laughs> thank you and i really i i the podcast is so brilliant and i love where you're in front of a, an audience as well i've enjoyed listening to those thanks Rosie. oh thank you oh well i hope yeah hope people enjoy if they have had a breakup do go and listen to the breakup monologues and i hope perhaps you'll feel part of the community even though it's not the best time to be going through a breakup when when we're in the middle of a pandemic but uh, yeah, you're not alone and, and do come and be part of the Breakup Monologues community. I really hope you enjoyed that. Let me know what you think. And if you would like to review and rate the podcast, please do. I always appreciate that. And if you would like to support the podcast and allow me to keep interviewing these amazing people, then you can donate the price of a coffee to my Kofi fund and I will put all the details in the show notes and please sign up to my newsletter as well. Take very good care.